Good morning. Today we're entering our second installment in the book of Philippians, this new series that we've started. And I want to thank Scott for getting us kicked off last week. I really do appreciate that. This, uh, this sermon I've titled, Choosing Good Even When the Dots Don't Connect. How many of you have uh, grown up in a broken world? That's every hand. All right. So stick with me. All right. It's every hand. And here's the reality. Many of you have had circumstances that didn't add up. And most of you have learned that sometimes the story doesn't end with a pretty red bow around it. But the reality is in Mark 10, he said that there was one who was good alone. And we have to choose good in the midst of our circumstances being uncertain, maybe even, maybe even causing us fear. That's why Paul, writing to Philippi, was a huge letter and was really encouraging. It was one of multiple prison epistles. He wrote Colossians, Galatians, but he writes to Philippians and he has no need to rebuke them. In fact, the book is pure admonishment for a pure devotion and a growing maturity in this church. They were changing. So much so that the, the poorest church in all the New Testament became known as the most generous church in all the New Testament. The Lord smiled upon them, and Paul smiled upon them and encouraged them. This was a church completely changed by the gospel. And this is what happens when we all come into close proximity and true presence with the Lord Jesus. Paul had changed. He was no longer, by the time he wrote this letter, who he once was. Three decades later, after his, after his conversion, the Philippians church, the first church that Paul leads and plants as he's moving west from the ministry of the gospel, starting in Jerusalem, heading west. This is the first church that he plants, and he admonishes their change. I have a question for you before we get started. Are you ready to change? Are you willing to change? The only thing that got the admonishment of Jesus, the admonishment of Paul's hand, was their willingness to become less like themselves like John the Baptist wrote, and more like him. So I want to pray. Father, we love you and we thank you so much that you love us. We pray today that we would change in becoming precisely who you want us to be individually, precisely who you desire us to be as a church. We pray to be the church that would make you smile. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. I'm going to jump right in. I just have seven verses to get to today, and we're going to work through them verse by verse, but I'm going to have you stand as I read all of them right now. And, uh, and then we'll, I'll go back and break them down. So please stand. Verse 12, chapter 1 of Philippians, it says, Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm pure, uh, that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am here in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether the false motive or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. You can be seated. I want to look at these first two verses 
if it's okay. I'm just going to break down the first couple verses. It says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters here have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Here's our first point. We have to be willing to choose faithfulness over fear. Paul has every reason to fear. He has a predicament and he owns it. He is in chains. In fact, he's been imprisoned here for four years. It says in Romans that he desired to preach in Rome. This was the epicenter to all culture that was Gentile and pagan. He knew that if he could get to Rome, to the epicenter of all that, the apostle to the Gentiles could have an effective ministry to the Gentiles. So he needed to get to Rome. But as he sits in Rome in in chains or imprisoned, he's been there for four years writing these prison epistles that I just mentioned. And he writes this letter back to Philippi to understand the importance of what he means when he repeats over and over again that I am in chains. You need to understand it's with emphasis that he's saying, I do not like it. How many of you have ever had circumstances handed to you that you didn't like? He says, I don't like it. I'm in chains. It's not like I'm going to lie to you. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm, I'm in chains. I don't have freedom. It's not, I'm not my own. I'm, I'm bound here. And so I, I, I've had a lot of my freedoms revoked, and I have even had to appeal that I'm a Roman citizen just to expedite, just to expedite my, my processing. I want to have a sentence. I want to, I want to know that I can either be free or, or get it on with it, you know. But, like, I, here I sit and I wait. And I'm going to explain a little bit more in a moment about, like, what it looked like for him to be in chains. But he doesn't like it. But he chooses to celebrate what his chains are producing. This is really important. So uh, can I have the map from last week just for a second? I want to show you something. Now this map, because we're trying to fit it into a screen, does not do justice to the the sheer uh, vastness of distance here. So, okay, so Jerusalem's down here in the corner, okay? That's where the gospel ministry began, with the Jew, in Jerusalem. Okay, all the way up here is where Paul is in Rome. That is 2,500 miles away. 2,500 miles. You must imagine this minus any technological advances or transportational advances. So when he writes to Philippi here in the middle, the first church that he planted as the ministry was moving west from Jerusalem into Europe, it's 800 miles from where he is in prison. So when he writes a letter, it's not like, how many of you get mad when someone texts you, you text someone, they don't text you right back? (laughs) This letter's taking months, if not months, to get to the people he's writing to. 2,500 miles. Like, again, this, it is closer to drive to Edmonton, Alberta, where Daniel M. is, than to drive from Jerusalem to Rome. This is more like British Columbia, 200 miles south of Alaska. It's far, very far in a world that is not industrialized. Hello? These letters are like super advanced technology. Okay? And Paul's writing as the gospel is taking the world they know by storm. And it's moving forward. He says, I celebrate and I rejoice in what my chains are doing. 
So they've locked him up, and everywhere this guy preaches, uh, like a revolt starts. Like it stirs the people up. And even in Rome, he's stirring people up. But in Rome, they've heard now, we talked about this last week, a little bit about what happens when you put this guy in prison. So he's not necessarily in prison. It's more likely he's on house arrest. And in house arrest, he still has a little bit of freedom to do some things. He cannot work. He cannot make an income. He's a tent maker. So he depends on the generosity of other churches like Philippi who fund his entire ministry while he's in, he's in uh, prison in Rome. But on house arrest, the difference here is this. They've heard that if we put this guy in jail, the walls are likely to come down. Remember from last week, like the angel Lord flung open, like we won't have a jail, so we may not want to put this dude in prison. Something different about this guy. That could, ha that could have alluded to their decision. But more likely, maybe both, their prisons were overcrowded. So they put Paul on house arrest because he's not a super big threat to them. He's not like a bad citizen in Rome. He just preaches the gospel and it stirs things up. But house arrest in their day looks way different than it does to ours. House arrest in their day means that you are chained to a centurion guard, a trained killer 24-7. So you have no privacy. No privacy to sleep, to go to the bathroom, not even to pray. No quiet time by yourself. You write, you preach, you teach with that guy chained to you 24-7. So as he writes and teaches and preaches, what is he celebrating? That the very gospel that changed you and changed me and is changing the world, the Roman centurion guard, of which there are 9,000 people in the imperial guard at this time, are hearing it. They can't go anywhere. They have to stand watch with me. And when they shift, it's a new guy. And I preach Jesus. And they're hearing it. And so this message is spreading not only through the Imperial Guard and their families, but it is reaching high-standing high officials like politicians. It's reaching well into the prestigious in their families. And it's changing the culture. So Paul being put in chains has led to him having a massive influence in the, in the palace. The place where if, if by decree they set a law, all of Roman provinces have to do it. So these people are hearing the gospel and this chains which would serve, would, would think, one would think would be a problem. He doesn't like them and would keep him like from advancing the gospel has created a platform for him. Hello? And so he is choosing to celebrate rather than to complain. How many of us when circumstances don't go quite the way we want, things don't add up the way that we would desire, and there was not a pretty red bow at the end of that story, we choose to celebrate rather than complain. When we looked at Jonah a couple weeks ago, and you have Jonah who was disobedient, ran from the Lord, but then finally responded to the Lord, said yes, surrendered, goes, and his mortal enemies are preached to, and God's judgment of them, like taking them off the planet, like wiping them out, is relented, and Jonah, in Jonah chapter 4, goes up on top of a hillside, and he just celebrates, right? How many of you here a couple weeks ago just celebrates that? He does the opposite and makes himself incredibly human, very relatable to us. He just complains. He just complains. 
How many of you remember Gideon, the story of Gideon, when God, the angel of the Spirit of the Lord, comes seeking him in the middle of a battle where he is a coward hiding in the midst of battles, the Midianites are overpowering them. And his response, as the Lord taps him on the shoulder, says, hey, you mighty brave man, you mighty man of valor. He goes, hey, I don't think you understand. I'm the least of these, and if God is in this, then why has all this happened to us? Anyone ever said that? My circumstances aren't adding up, and I was born in America, industrialized world. The blessing of God means everything adds up. A, right? Correct? Amen? That would be completely counter to what Paul's writing. Paul goes, I'm in chains. I am completely out of control of my own freedom. I'm depending on them to decide my freedom. I'm doing the best with my circumstances, which I hate. By the way, I'm not happy about it. I'm not going to blow sunshine up your skirt. This ain't fun. But the reality is, I choose to celebrate. Like God is doing some stuff with some really important people. So he sees the larger picture and draws a conclusion from God's perspective rather than drawing a conclusion from his present circumstances. Rather than letting the circumstances in his life determine for him mentally his success, his blessing, or his present standing with God. How many of you ever thought, things aren't going right, God hates me? He isn't struggling with that. He's beyond that. He does not force God into a box because he's matured beyond that and he doesn't allow his circumstances, his circumstances to define who God is. We know in Scripture God is unchanging. He'll be the same today, yesterday, and forever. So your feelings about the matter should not dictate who God is. And his circumstances also do not dictate it. How many of you have ever played this game before? Like Job, hey, I served you pretty faithfully. Things still ain't working out. So step up, big boy. You know? And you, instead of like allowing your circumstances to determine how much God hates you, you just decide to challenge God because you're like, hey, it, I followed you. It's not worked out. So I don't know if I'm going to follow you anymore. And so you start to determine for yourself where he stands with you. Watch out. Remember how he responded to Job? Uh, hey, hey, who made, God, who made man's mouth? Like, oh, that's right, you were there when I created everything. <laughs> Do you know who you're talking to? Watch yourself. Maybe, maybe you have forced yourself at times, and this is why it says we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Maybe you... Because you have a wrong picture based on the way that Paul writes about what retribution looks like. Blessings mean blessings, curses mean curses, okay? Right? We know that. That's what it says in the Old Testament. That's what the Jews thought. But it don't add up when you look at Paul's circumstances here. That doesn't make sense. And so maybe you, like Jacob in Genesis 31, wrestle at God and will not stop ferociously fighting for yourself and you won't let him go until he blesses you. Maybe he is blessing you. Hold on. Maybe you need to see it from God's perspective. Maybe the change that your flesh is in, which, by the way, this kingdom is ending, is serving to advance his kingdom, which will never end. Possibly. 
This whole movement, by the way, this whole movement that's taking place right now makes no sense to anyone who's listening. In their world, you had Jew and Gentile. On both categories, that's how that worked. This whole movement makes no sense. They have this prominent Jew who was like waiting for a seat on the Sanhedrin, mentored by the head of the Sanhedrin, which is their Supreme Court, and was likely to take that guy's job. That guy turns his back on Judaism, starts preaching in Jerusalem, moving all the way west, and he's preaching about another Jew who can do miracles, who apparently the Jews paid, like, listen to the Roman guard who's, like, attached to him. Like, think about this. Like, Paul keeps preaching and stirring stuff up, but, like, they're saying we were paid to kill that guy. So we put him on a cross, and now, now they're saying that he came out of the grave, and he's like a king. He's like the king of kings. Like there's Caesar and he's like exceeds that status. Like he has an, a kingdom that don't ever end. There, you ought to hear what comes out of this guy. That's why it's stirring everybody up. And so I don't, I don't quite get it because it's like it's not really a Jewish thing because I know some Jews, they hate him. They hate him for detracting and walking away. So they're not with Paul. But here's the thing, it's not like a Jewish thing solely because there's also like Gentiles involved. Look at the church of Philippi. There's like both. So Romans are going, what is this thing? It doesn't even have a name. At this point, 30 years after the, the conversion of Paul, it still doesn't have a name. They don't call it Christianity. It's called people of the way. Like what is this thing taking the world by storm? And Paul says, look, I don't like being in chains, but I like they can't figure this out. I like that it's changing everything. And I like that you, Philippi, I like that you are willing to suffer as well. I like that you're mature enough to recognize that while I had, have every reason to be fearful, and you, you yourself who had nothing and you're being persecuted, they're tightening your chains like they tighten mine. You advance the gospel, you live in community as you're called to, and they don't like it, so they come on you. I, I love that you are like, like, like me. Like, I want to know Christ and I want to fellowship in his sufferings. We'll get there soon in Philippians. I want to know that kind of walk. And I know that I can say that to you because I trust you. I smile on the fact that you do this. You have been the people who are spreading this, this message even more fiercely as they tighten my chains. And these chains have only served to inspire you believers to share even more boldly rather than cause some some cowering in fear, rather than turning back and submitting, this imprisonment has only served to embolden the spread of the gospel in this message. It's only served to make it fan rather than to suppress it. How many of you have been on the planet long enough to watch a protagonist who has a just cause and a great message be thrown in chains. And as they torture that individual, it causes a revolt within the people around and they just rise up. That's what's happening. That's what's happening at the start of the church. The, as they tighten his chains, we'll read it in a moment. He continues just to see the gospel advance. In fact, it's happening with other preachers in the pulpit. Here it is, verse 15. It is true. That some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, 
but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me, which I'm in chains. But what does it matter? <laughs> Such a big statement. What does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether false or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Next point. Paul chooses mission over motive. Paul chooses mission over motive, choosing to rejoice that the message continues and the mission goes on rather than dwell upon the fact that the motives of those who are preaching Christ just like he is, but they're not in change, they're free to run, are in rivalry with him. They do not like him. They may have a little bit motive that is questionable. It may be impure. He's not sure, but some, he says, preach with purity, some not. But despite how self-centered they may be, Christ is preached. Listen here, we don't understand the nature of their falling out. How many of you have heard before that Paul was a little offensive? Paul may have offended these people. We don't know. That may be the case. He may have offended them and they didn't like him. So, so like they just preach and they know that when they preach the fervency of the gospel and they know that, that it stirs things up, all it does is tighten the noose around Paul and they love that. They may not know they may not be as famous, and we, we don't know. We don't know that their nature of their rival may not be that, that they wish they were, their fame would exceed Paul's, because he's pretty famous at this point, that it would exceed his. But here's the point. He goes, I don't care their motives. The mission of the gospel is that the true kingdom advance, and no matter whether it be selfish or pure, Christ is preached, and the true king is gaining ground. In a kingdom that exceeds this one. So, yeah, there may be some who want to be more famous. Hey, uh, we, it doesn't specify. It may be that I had a falling out with a couple of these guys and they don't really like me. So they preach and they preach hard and, you know, I get tortured. So what? I mean, like, think on that for just one second. How many of us are mature enough given those circumstances? People that do not even like you are out preaching the same thing you are. And because it's stirring up other folks, you get punished more intensely for it. And when others ask, like, hey, do you like that? Your response is, so what? It doesn't matter. Christ is preached. Hello? Like, we live in a justice culture, don't we? How many of you know that life is not fair? But how do you recognize that this sounds unfair? Paul is taking it on the chin because other people who do not like him are preaching harder and they know that when they do, he's going to take the brunt. He's going to suffer for it. These dots don't necessarily connect. And here's what he says. So what? It doesn't matter. The important thing, despite their motives, even if impure, is that Christ has preached. Are you there? Am I there? Are we there? I said, are we willing to change? These people were changing. 
And he could write these things to Philippi because they were willing to do it. They were going through the same kind of thing. And so I'm going to give you your next point. Here it is. I said we live in a justice culture. Paul is choosing joy over justice. He says at the end of verse 18, Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, that what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. How many of you have ever heard, be the bigger guy? Paul's the bigger guy. Paul's willing to put it aside. Paul's willing to let go and forgive. He chooses to rejoice. He actually functionally chooses joy over what's right. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I, I grew up in America. And I got kids who grew up in America. And it's become a narrative in our home. In fact, Heather and I have had to turn it into like a joke because it does not matter daily, one if not all at different points, my children will come in and say, it's not fair. He got this, she, didn't, she got this. Okay, you know what I'm talking about? Anyone else have kids? This isn't fair, right? So here's the thing. It was happening the other day. One of them's like writhing, like this is not fair, like blah, blah, blah. And giving me their reason for why it's not fair and like that they, they deserve me to act and kill the other one. <laughs> and out of nowhere, I hear Heather in the back room. This is, this is where it's become. This is our narrative. I hear justice, man. <laughs> and we've turned the whole fight for fairness into a character that is like a superhero with a cape flapping in the wind. And it takes the form of every one of my kids, like, daily. And they'll come in and they go, I want justice. Maybe just my sinful kids. <laughs> but Paul says he's beyond that. He's gone further than that. Philippi is beyond that. They are choosing joy despite their lack of justice. Because Paul is acting and living beyond the need to see people be fair or, listen, the need to ensure that the offender pay for their offense. He doesn't care. He says, so what? It doesn't matter. Christ is preached. Paul is joyful in spite of his trouble. And as long as Christ's cause progresses, and his name is preached, Paul's like, that's all that matters. Paul's not wrapped up in his reputation, nor is he overly concerned with the malice of these human detractors who have a problem with him. Are we there? Is that like us? Or how many of you, like me, might have a problem with the person that's making you suffer? Not fair offending you, anyone, here's the thing, let's just ask this way. Not you, not me, but we all know that guy or gal that just has to have justice, right? They seek to have the offender be taken down. They want what's fair. See, Paul's identity is no longer wrapped up in that. He is like beyond the name-calling stuff, doesn't care. Paul's not there any longer. In fact, he'll speak to it later. In this very book, he'll say, I consider everything of the former as rubbish, 
Actually, he uses a different word. But the reality is, he says it. He says, I was everything that a Jew can aspire to. I was it. I rose above my contemporaries. I would gladly turn my back on that again to be here without freedom for one day with Jesus, then a lifetime of that. That's how much my heart has changed. And every person that came into proximity and presence of the Lord had that same kind of response when they genuinely let the Lord speak into their life. I'm going to give you an example. Here it is. How many of you have ever read the Gospel of John and loved the Gospel of John, maybe even one of his epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John? He was the youngest of all the disciples. He had a brother named James. He and his brother were on the inner three along with Peter. When you hear the 12, you always hear the leaders, Peter, James, and John. Well, John was the youngest. And his brother and he were given a name. They were called the Sons of Thunder. That is not because they preached with fiery tone. That was because they were thin-skinned, hair-triggered, and would fight with drop of a hat. These men wanted their reputation to precede them. And they were ready to fight at the drop of a hat. Do you know what John's name became? His mantra before his ministry was over? He was known as the Apostle of Love. The shepherd who would more likely hug you than like he once did, walk around with his dukes up. He, in fact, couldn't even bring himself in the Gospel of John to say his own name. He said, I'm simply the disciple whom Jesus loved. When we are in close proximity to Jesus, we move from a son of thunder to a son of God. And everything, when we allow him to do what he does, changes. We, like John the Baptist, become less like ourselves and more like him. But we have to be willing to change. God can and does the impossible. I need you to hear this really clearly. Yet it often requires his disciples' call to the impractical. Like joy over justice. Like mission over others' jealous motives. And lastly, like choosing to remain faithful when your circumstances bring nothing but fear and uncertainty. Can you accept that? Can we as disciples of that other kingdom, the one exceeding the natural one, the one that's dying right in front of us, choose good when all the dots don't connect and they don't connect for your or my comfort? I want to know him and I want to fellowship in his sufferings. Is that you? Is that me? Because these people changed. Are you and I ready to change? Become the person or the church that can hear the smile of Jesus and the admonishment of an apostle like Paul right over us, well done. The only letter that required no rebuke is admonishment because of pure devotion and maturity. These are a different people because of Jesus. Are we willing to change and become a people that will choose good even when the dots don't connect? Because we'll choose joy over what's fair. We'll choose joy over justice, mission over motive, and faithfulness over everything that might lead us in this world to fear. Father, we love you. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the example that you give us of the church at Philippi. We thank you for the example you give us in Paul. 
And thank you for the example you give us in the apostle of love, John. We thank you that no matter who it is that we study and we seek to learn from, when they came into close proximity with you in your presence, they could not stay the same. John the Baptist, your own cousin, said, less of me, more of him. God, today, would we begin to change? And here's what I ask is that your spirit would move so much in our mind and heart right now that we would even respond differently right now in this room than we normally would. This is not mundane. We're not going to do this as routine. If God, you call us to come to the altar and lay prostrate before you, we'll do it. If you call us to your table with a family or a friend, we'll do it. If you ask us to go to someone here and pray to support them and lift their arms like Aaron and her did Moses, then God will do it. But Jesus, will you call us right now your people? to the level of change you desire, and may we be obedient to minister alongside you as you advance the gospel even in this room. We love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.